Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello, and welcome to episode 180. My guests today are Paul D. Otemans and Dev Aditya, who have decided to address a global teacher shortage with AI, specifically a digital human AI teacher, as they put it, called Beatrice, who appears as an animated head avatar that can hold conversations. Their mission is to upskill 750 million underserved students globally by 2030. Paul the Otemans is a female tech leader in the UK. She is a neuroscientist and psychologist with a PhD in cognitive psychology and cognitive neuroscience from Brunel University. She was named one of the 22 most influential women in the UK of 2022 by Startup Magazine UK and has also received awards for her work from the UK Prime Minister and globally. Dev Aditya is a young global innovator and under-30 social entrepreneur recognized by Innovate UK with research experience at the Alan Turing Institute and Brunel University London, and his work is currently operating in 13 countries. He and Paldi are behind the Otemans Institute at oiedu.co.uk. I've got a lot of questions about using AI for teaching, so let's get right to the interview. Well, Dev Aditya and Paul De Otmans, welcome to AI and You. Thanks a lot. Glad to be here, Peter. Yeah, lovely to meet you. And Paul De, you're calling in from London. Uh, Dev, you're calling in from India, and you have developed something around education and AI, which we want to talk about because that's a space of. Well, it's in desperate need of innovation. You're coming on the heels a few episodes ago of a episode that I did about education, and I had some fairly scathing things to say about the innovation or lack thereof in educational institutions. So maybe you have some good news for us about what AI can do in that respect. So why don't you kick off, tell us what you're doing in that respect. So thanks a lot for that, Peter. Uh, fantastic question. And uh, just before this podcast, I actually got to listen to about 15 minutes of the previous podcast. So quite a lot of valid points. So just for the listeners, I think to begin with, what is our focus? Our focus is primarily on using AI to teach people. And there is a reason for that. The reason for this is we ourselves, and maybe Paul can touch on this later, have been on this journey from 2020. And initially, when we were on this journey, we did scale to 11 plus countries in one year. And at that time, we were using human teachers. Now, what we discovered during this entire journey was that the single biggest piece that is extremely difficult to scale is the teacher. And that's perhaps also the one which has the more bigger shortage in the world. So this is obviously from my experience, but if you check data, etc. out there as well, we need 69 million more teachers by 2030 just to keep up with school education. And, you know, a lot of this data comes from developing countries, yes. But even in the UK at the moment, we are not able to fill all of the teacher spots, especially for maths and English. This is a problem in Germany. This is a problem in France. So this problem is only growing. 
and it has been expedited also by the post-COVID sort of scenario. So I'm not saying that AI is here to come and replace anybody. What we are trying to say is there is a shortage of teachers and for those primarily to begin with who can't access teachers or who can't access teachers to the tune of how somebody who is from a privileged background can, they need additional support. And with the advent of generative AI, with the advent of so-called machines finally able to get into the realm of language, this has really become possible. And that's one of the technologies that we use to build our generative AI fine-tuned language models and our products. And possibly the world would know us best for Beatrice and our other digital human teachers, which are essentially avatars sitting on top of language models and other proprietary technology that can teach people. I don't know, Paul, if you want to add something there. I think that has described us in a nutshell. So the only thing I would add is that when we are developing our products and continuously fine-tuning, not just the AI models, but also the looks and the usability, we have a very research-focused approach. So we look at our products very much from a user-centered design perspective and run a lot of proper research tests with participants internally and externally to get more feedback and to further improve as we go along all the time. So, Pauli, if I can ask you first, because you've got the pedagogical background and maybe you can tell us some more about your experience and credentials in that respect. I think a big question is, if you're going to wade into the space where you're going to disrupt the market model in some way for education providers, what do you understand the reason for the shortage of teachers to be? <laughs> That's a difficult question. Well, firstly, there's not enough people that have been trained to be a teacher. There are many, many more people that need education than there are people that be able to deliver this. It's a field that also requires quite a lot of training. Specifically, if you're looking at higher education institutions, one often needs to have a PhD in order to deliver teaching at institutions. And that is, well, the number of people that do a PhD is just not a lot. So there is just not enough supply as such. When it comes to the lower levels like primary school and secondary school, I'm actually not quite sure. I think it also has to do maybe with the training. It has to do maybe also with the pay. I'm not saying the salaries in, in education are, are that great. <laughs> a lot of people choose for a, a corporate job instead where they can still make a difference or can still work on educational related subjects and topics, but then from a corporate structure. So I think that's are some of the things that maybe have been barriers for people to join education as a work environment. And I think, again, AI can be definitely playing a role here to support all those learners who need it the most. And if I may add to that, Peter, just uh, two points. I'll just quote some other data out there, so which are not may not be direct factors, but certainly indirect factors. A lot of teachers are certainly leaving the job also post-COVID. And this has been a tendency in a lot of countries. And this is because of the immense stress that they went through during COVID as heroes to you know take society through that period. So that is also causing a higher churn. That's one. And I'm just touching on the other point that you talked about, you know, the word you use, disruption. Sure, we can disrupt, uh, you know, existing industry as such. But for me, how I look at disruption is two parts. You either give something to a population, which is give or take 10x cheaper or more efficient than their other predecessor or the alternative that they have, or you reach a population who haven't had access to that sort of property in the first place. So where we started off, and I'm not saying that's our core GTM at all, but where we started off, we have identified there are close to 750 million learners in the world today 
who don't, quote unquote, don't have access to a teacher. And we have taught in you know countries like Malawi, we have taught in Iraq, in refugee camps, in Kurdistan, etc. They don't have access. But one thing that they have access, and it's really, really growing exponentially, and that's how we actually taught 30,000 of these learners, is internet and mobile. So it's not the computer, it's not a tablet, you know, people try to give them tablets, etc. That sort of works. But every family has a mobile which they use for a plethora of things. So that's very central to them. Maybe a 2015 model. But that mobile is there and internet connectivity is really getting into the realm. And in some places, it's actually better internet than we have in the UK. <laughs> so I think we want to get on to some of the economic model here because one of the things I want to make sure that we tackle up front is whenever we're talking about AI being used to augment a role, a function that people do, there's concern that it's going to displace jobs. And I know you've already said that's not going to happen, but I know that there's a concern out there already about that. And teachers are, let's be clear from my point of view, absolute heroes. And I know you're saying the same thing as well. You know, if you ask me to wait, kindergarten teacher versus media lawyer, those salaries ought to be swapped. No question about it. I think it's a travesty that those compensations are weighted the way they are. Now, if we're looking then at AI being used to serve these underserved populations, can we be sure that this is not eliminating a market for, say, a gig economy in teaching that would enable some people to teach remotely, even if for even less than they were to get paid for in person? Yes, that could happen in theory. But let's just look at it in this context. It's an SDG goal, right? It's two SDG goals, rather. And for the last 25 years, they couldn't solve this problem. It's a big problem. And gig economy may or may not be able to solve it, although internet could help. But there are two other things that we need to be very, very cautious about. Number one is quality control. And in the way or in the systems that we have today of teaching anyway, I would argue quality control is almost impossible because no two human beings teach in the same way. However, you have QA, etc. in bigger institutions. That's not going to be really possible in these remote areas. And we have so many cases already where there are teachers, but they are teaching outdated materials, etc. because they themselves have not been upskilled. And that's found out maybe a year or two later, six months later, which creates a problem. So one is the quality control part. Secondly, one could argue there's ethics behind AI and all of that, which we can look at clean data and keep sort of supporting. But if we have a gig economy model, you're also talking about a gig economy model where people come in and teach vulnerable groups. That can also have its own risks because you are basically taking people, you know, members, children of vulnerable groups without too much oversight and putting them with somebody in the gig economy. So that could also be a risk. So these are things that there's no perfect model here, but it's just, you know, from a wider picture point of view, it's worth weighing these things up. So the group that you're talking about serving, the people and uh, children in places like Malawi, are by definition impoverished. That yeah. implies there's not a lot of money in this space. And so an AI startup would tend to ignore that as a market because AI startups are about making as much money as possible. Can you talk about how this will be funded and become a going concern? Yeah, cool. I can do that. And Baldi, if you want to add, please do. <laughs> I don't want yeah. to be, but obviously, obviously this is my side of the business. No, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so first of all, our core GTM, 
from a paid customer point of view at the moment is with higher education. So we work with universities and at the moment we are working with a couple of universities where an entire module of nine hours will be taught by our AI end-to-end. So that's our paid GTM model. But the other model where we have the impoverished side of it can be looked at in two ways. So even now, AI aside, we still serve thousands of learners for free every year. Now, the two ways we can do this is, number one, we have worked with governments, we have worked with NGOs, we have worked with UNICEF. So it can be a paid model through them because at a unit economic level, it actually is cheaper to reach them like this than rather than building brick and mortar schools, training up teachers and putting them in these regions. So that's one. That's one model. The second model is the model of the data. So there is obviously a value of data. We all know that. And most companies will perhaps take that data from us for free. Now, if we are weighing in the data that these interactions are giving us, that value can compensate for giving this service to these people for free. Because then it becomes something like a barter system where you don't have the money to pay, but you're giving of something value to this model and the model is in return teaching you for free, never taking a penny from you. So that's another way of doing it. Thank you. And certainly to clarify for anyone listening, I wasn't implying how are you going to get rich off this because it doesn't sound like the sort of thing that you're in for the money. In fact, uh, Paul D, can you tell us how the idea, the inspiration for this came to you, what the driver was? Yeah, I'll try to keep our history as short as possible because it's been quite a few months or years now that we have been on this journey. We wanted to teach underserved communities across Asia. And uh, Dave and I had traveled there, taught different students, different teachers as well, and talked to lots of different people in the education sphere. And we really enjoyed that. And we set up our own employability curriculum on transferable skills because we found there was a great lack of this in the area. People were not getting a job. People were not getting employed. And we thought we are something that we can support. And as Dave said, very rapidly, we scaled and were in 11 countries in a scope of a year. And we did that by using a lot of human trainers and we had to go online due to the pandemic. And then we thought, well, this is great, but this is not sustainable. We have to keep finding new trainers. We have to keep training them The quality control. As they've said, no teacher is the same way. If we teach today and I teach tomorrow the same topic, everybody's going to find it different. The way we engage with the learners, even if the curriculum is the same, the entire experience will be different. I was said, this is not scalable. So how can we then scale this great thing that we have developed and still reach all these learners without having the need to keep adding more and more trainers and then probably losing oversight. And that's where we thought, well, what about technology? And the closest we could think of was AI, artificial intelligence, human intelligence. So we said, let's give this a go. And then in early 2021, we had our first MVP that we tested with underserved learners and they really loved it, which, well, we hoped that was the case, but they really said that they found Beatrice, our first Beatrice model, to be really human-like. And that was something that is very important to us, that our digital human teacher is human-like, that they showcase warmth, empathy, compassion, that they encourage you as a learner, they motivate you, they really have an interaction with you. And it's not just, here's the content, I'm just teaching this to you. And that's it. No, it's very much a two-way stream. So that's us, I think, in a nutshell, to where we started with having our first product sort of semi-launched. What's it like to interface with, to interact with Beatrice? This is an audio podcast, so paint us a picture. What would we see here and experience with Beatrice? As a user, you would log into the platform on a either mobile phone or a desktop, and Beatrice would come up in the middle of the screen, sort of top to sort of 
whole face showing and she would interact with you by first saying, hi, I am Beatrice. Who are you? Welcome to the session. She first wants to get to know you a little bit. Do you know what's your name? Where you're from? What would you like to learn? And following that, you have chosen a topic that you would like to learn, let's say CV writing. So she will teach you step by step on, let's say, the CV in the background behind the CV and then guide you to how to write that CV. You can at any point raise your hand, like your virtual hand, so to speak, like you can do in Zoom and Teams and other platforms that you can interrupt her and ask her a question. And you continue the dialogue until you are ready to continue with the lesson and you press continue lesson. She will also ask you questions because she wants to know whether you understood what she was talking to you about. <laughs> so at the end of each sort of subsection, she will ask you questions about the content that she just taught you. And if you're not really understanding something, she will then, let's say, go back and sort of teach you that again in the form of new content. She will ask you questions in terms of MCQ. She asks you open questions. And so basically together with you and Beatrice, you go on a journey together to learn about, let's say, CV. And at the end of it, you should be able to then really write your CV and you can ask her for feedback as well. So one example is that, let's say you have no idea really what you want to do, but you think, I've seen a sales job out there. That's maybe something for me. So I'm going to apply for that. But you have no experience whatsoever as sales, but you need to give it a go. So you may ask Beatrice, well, Beatrice, I'm going to apply for a sales job, but I don't have any experience. What on earth do I need to put on this CV? How can I showcase myself? And because she has been interacting with you, she may know that you have done a PhD. And like, okay, but let's say, Dave, you've done a PhD. You must have done many presentations there, either at a conference or internally to your team. You can showcase presentation skills on your CV because that's definitely something you need in a sales job. So that way, you can work together really with her. And at the end, you would then get a certificate if you have completed the lesson. So that's sort of how the journey would look like from a user point of view. You used a term there that sounded like MCQ. Is that right? Can you define that? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I should have said that. A multiple choice questions. Ah. So that's part of it. Yeah. Thank you. In a nutshell, what we hope to mimic and what we are already doing is mimicking a one-to-one lesson with, let's say, somebody like yourself. If you were the teacher and I was the student, how would that interaction be as a human to human? That's what we are trying to do. So obviously, they would have a chit-chat. They would get to know each other. Over time, they would develop a relationship and the teacher would ask questions. It's just not a Q&A bot and vice versa. So that's what we are trying to mimic. Got that. It's like you having a one-to-one with someone via Zoom. Right. Or Teams or whatever platform. So I wanted to pick up on that. You've been describing what was a one-to-one interaction between the computer and someone who was an adult there, post-educational, entering the job market. And the context that... We were talking about this in initially, I was getting more visions of a group of children in a village somewhere crowded around a computer. Can you reconcile for me which markets you're aiming at? Yeah, so our Beatrice or our digital human teachers is always one-to-one. So if you remember, we mentioned the mobile phone. So it's always going to be a one-to-one interaction between the user The reason we brought up the entire part about underprivileged children is because that's one disruptive market that we touch, but our GTM is universities. But even when we work in Malawi, for instance, when we work in Iraq, when we work in Sri Lanka, etc., our mode of interaction between Beatrice and the student is always one-to-one. It's a one-to-one reaction. Got that. Another term I need explained, uh, GTM? Go-to-market strategy. Thank you. Yeah. 
So we were all disrupted last November with large language models taking an enormous leap to provide experiences for practically anyone that wanted to connect to them. Very similar to what you're describing. You can, with ChatGPT, you can set up context for the interactions, say, this is who I am, this is how to talk with me, this is who you should be, and have this kind of interaction where you could get it to teach you things already. How are you differentiating what you're doing from what I can do with that? Dave, I think you should take this as you are AI architect in a team. Yeah. See, we are considerably different. So when you first interact with ChatGPT, it's more of a prompt-based interaction, right? You prompt it, it tells you something. But sure, you can obviously prompt it to, you know, give it the structure of a teacher, you know, the characterizations of a teacher, and then keep prompting it to mold that interaction forward. In our case, we are not really relying on the user to start that entire interaction. It's not a generalized model. So the user gets the teacher right from the get-go. So there is already an expectation of what the teacher does and what the learner or the user does. Now, one of the interesting parts here is, for the first time using this approach, we can give anybody in the world the same level of teacher. So you get X, I get X, everybody gets X. But as each individual starts interacting with the teacher, what happens is the AI obviously molds to your user behavior. It understands how you're behaving, how you're speaking. So for the listeners, another example is everybody, so-called, but everybody gets the same Facebook platform, right? But eventually you see different ads and somebody else sees different ads. So the way the AI eventually will react to you is going to be different, but you can give everybody the same AI. Now, one of the most interesting parts is, you know, I could say that ours as an avatar, ChatGPT doesn't, but yes, you can, you know, stick it to an avatar or things like that. But our language model, the fine-tuned language model that we have built is purely for education. And some of the things that we focus on, I'll just give three for the listeners at the moment. Number one is ours is only knowledge-based content the first primary base that we have put in. So what that means is the risks of hallucinations, as would have any generalized model because it has tons of more data, is reduced. So that's number one. Number two is ours is a 5 billion parameter model. We're actually trying to shrink that further to do that. Number two is ours is a conversational dialogue-based model as well. So we won't use any kind of... There is the corpus of knowledge that we use and there is a corpus of human-level dialogues that we use. So what that means is it is focused primarily on interactions. So as you said in your last interaction as well, and at the end of the day, generative models just predict what the next word is, right? Or what the next sentence is. Our model can better predict using the corpus of knowledge, a more accurate answer we feel, and our model can predict a better response, a more human-like response to the interactions that the users are getting because it's only limited to that. So these are two of the most important aspects and how we think we are different from the likes of ChatGPT and the third one, I'll just keep it to we have an avatar. What age range of student do you see this getting to? I'll start this and I'm going to jump this off to Polity because she'll probably start with the earlier one because it's very important to understand this context. Our language model is multi-platform. So it can power many things. So the language model powers our digital human teachers, Beatrice being the first. It can also power 
chatbots and MOOC platforms. So, for instance, we did one in South Africa where 74% of the learners on that platform, which were women between the age of 16 and 25, said they would come back to that platform. And by the way, MOOC platforms are like Coursera and Udemy, massive online course platforms. They would come back more to the platform because of that. And 75% said they now knew what to learn next on the platform, just as a chatbot. So that's another example. The third one is our latest early beta product that we have taken out, which is called Teddy AI. It's a unity game with a teddy bear with our conversational AI stuck at the back of it with a lot of limitations. And that becomes a study buddy for four to nine-year-old children. So I'm going to bounce this off to Paul D now because she's the product owner of that product. And possibly, I think we should start the journey there. Yes, thank you, Dev. Yeah, so indeed, Teddy AI is your child's conversational AI study buddy. So Teddy can talk to your child about anything they want to discuss with you. Well, probably not with you, but they would do with Teddy. And when we tested Teddy with children in a few schools in the West London region, uh, where we are also based, they loved it. They couldn't get enough. I had to get my phone <laughs> back from them so that they would really wanted to join and continue the interaction. They loved talking to him, interacting with him. And that's the first part. That's the first part of Teddy. The child can talk. The second part is where the child can explore the entire, as we call, Teddy's world, where there are a lot of educational aspects to it. And as they've said, it's made on Unity, so it's a game. So there they can, in a conversational way, also learn about different topics that is all mapped to the UK primary school curriculum. So we followed the guidelines published by the UK government and created a lot of educational aspects and features in that. So it continues learning for the child outside of school. But the third part, which I think is most interesting, and I kept it for last, is you as the parent can also have an input in this. So your child plays on their device or your device, and you can have a, let's say, separate app or a separate setting within the app where you log in as the parent, you link your child's ID, I know their number, one, two, three, four, five, you link that to your account that you have as the parent and your child doesn't have access to that at all. And you can say to Teddy, okay, Teddy, next time you talk to my child, Peter, please practice multiplication of two with, with them because they're not so good at that. And I really would like them to learn more about that. So next time Peter interacts with Teddy, Teddy, you know, chit chat, they're talking about what they did at school or the holiday or the weekends or whatever it is that uh, Peter feels like talking to Teddy about. And then Teddy's like, okay, Peter, now let's talk about multiplication of two. And in that way, the child will learn what they need to learn for their education or what their parents may want to learn. And that is something that we have recently added. And I think it's, it's quite fascinating, I think, and it's quite useful. Uh, Dave, you have your hand up. Yeah, I just wanted to add a little bit from a technological standpoint in the most simplest way for those who might want to know that. It's fairly basic, to be honest. It's a prompt. So it's now it's a three-dimensional interaction. The child is interacting with Teddy where they are conversing using generative AI. So the, the child, he, she, they are prompting and the Teddy is speaking back. But from the backside, the parent can also prompt as you can do on, you know, chat GPT, right? Practice multiplications of two. It's just a button or a prompt saying that practice multiplications of two with my child in the next two hours of gameplay. And Teddy comes in and does that. And just to imagine that, you know, when we grew up, etc., when our parents showed us something, let's say they showed us Winnie the Pooh, right? So another bear. When we watched Winnie the Pooh, all of us watched the same Winnie the Pooh and the parents knew we were watching Winnie the Pooh. In this case, all of us have Winnie, but the parent can tell Winnie what they need to interact with the child with. So the child is having fun, doesn't feel interrupted, but during that fun can also learn something that the parent really wants them to learn as well. 
So that's the power of AI, and that's why we're excited about this early product of us. So each child, in essence, gets their own Winnie the Pooh, which goes beyond just the physical appearance, which has been easy enough to do up until now, but the personality and behavior of Winnie the Pooh in an educational context. Yes. Yep. That's the end of the first half of the interview. Part two will drop next week. In today's news, ripped from the headlines about AI, research from the University of California at Berkeley shows that artificial intelligence systems can process signals in a way that is remarkably similar to how the brain interprets speech. A finding, scientists say, might help explain the black box of how AI systems operate. Using a system of electrodes placed on participants' heads, scientists with the Berkeley Speech and Computation Lab measured brain waves as participants listened to a single syllable. Bah! Sounds a little boring, but then that's what research experimental subjects are there for. They then compared that brain activity to the signals produced by an AI system trained to learn English. The researchers transmitted the same recording of the bah sound through an unsupervised neural network that could interpret sound and measured the response of the network to that sound. Gashba Bergush, assistant professor of linguistics at UC Berkeley and lead author, said, quote, the shapes are remarkably similar. That tells you similar things get encoded, that processing is similar, end quotes. The study was published in the journal Scientific Reports. The side-by-side comparison graph of the two signals shows a striking similarity. It's interesting when we find similarities between the responses of a human brain and an artificial neural network because so much of the time when an ANN is trained to perform some human-like function, it's actually doing it radically different from how we do. That might still be the case in this case, but we have some evidence that at least some aspect of that process is the same. Next week, we'll conclude the interview and get into the details of how the virtual teacher works. Devin Poldy's definitions of teaching and learning 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0, and the experience of interacting with Teddy and the science behind these virtual teachers. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.